Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is Aging Ungracefully. My name is Afra, and my microphone is sitting funny. One second here. All right. Hi. How are you? <sighs> so it's a Monday. <laughs> it is Monday, July the 25th. Uh, if you listened to today's episode, um, which is part one of a two-part episode, today being uno, or wait, <laughs> dos episode, um, episode two, um, you would know that today Pope Francis was in my home reservation of Musquashis, Alberta. I am a Samson band member. Um, and I had said yesterday when I recorded part one that I had to make it two part. And the reason I had to make it two part is because I recognized while recording how angry I am and how sad I am and how frustrated I am. And I was recognizing that all of these emotions are coming up and there was really no way for that, nowhere for them to go except for like coming out of my mouth. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. I definitely started this podcast as a way of telling stories and even my own stories and other people's stories. But I think what, what hit me about it was, is that I didn't realize that there was so much deep anger and hurt and sadness. And it's interesting because as if you listen to part one, as you know, I did not attend residential school. Um, but there's something to be said about trauma that's felt at a molecular level, trauma that's felt at a generational level, a sadness that is there that you don't know why it's there, but you know it's there. And there's been so many studies now that prove that trauma can be passed on through DNA and that what we saw when studying um, like uh, Auschwitz, I was going to say, like studying what happened in Europe in regards to um, the termination of, of Jewish people, that sounds like the wrong way to say it, but um, in regards to the Holocaust is that you saw that it changed their DNA and that that DNA continues to be passed on generationally to generationally in Jewish people. And it's a very, it's the very same thing that we're seeing in First Nations communities. And so it's interesting what I recognized yesterday when I was talking about all of these feelings and emotions and frustrations that I had knowing that they're coming from a place of deep love, but they're also coming from a place of like trauma that I have always known is there, but have never, has never like manifested to the surface like that. And so I decided yesterday while recording, I would have just normally made an hour long episode and that would have been the end of it. But I was getting so heated that I was like losing my train of thought and I was getting really overwhelmed. And I was also sad. I was also incredibly sad. There's so much grief that comes up around residential schools and what it did to people. And I remember an elder that I had gotten an opportunity to speak to years ago, whom had said to me that sometimes they had wished that they hadn't survived, that those who'd lost their lives in residential school were the lucky ones. And that broke my heart then. And to now be sitting here years and years later and being older and much more educated, I look at it and I'm like, I could see that. I could see that. It's it's such a painful feeling to live through something horrific. 
And although I don't know the same horrors, it's something that I don't wish on anybody. And, you know, I had said to a friend today, like, I'm lucky because I live at a time and a space and a place where I'm able to heal through going to therapy, through doing regressional therapy, through doing EMDR, through talking to people. Like I get that opportunity to heal those things because I have the access to it. Um, Things that my family didn't have, things that weren't affordable or weren't provided or weren't as well talked about, or there was a lot of stigma around so that they, they just held it all in. And I feel incredibly lucky and blessed that I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to suffer like that. I was able to find help and get therapy and, and help me move forward. If about most, if all, not all, most trauma that's happened to me in this life to this point. And that's not saying that I'm like over it and I'm good. Um, healing trauma is a multi-layered, crazy interdimensional thing. Um, but what I'm finding now is that I'm, I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to take those steps, steps that were not as readily available for my grandma's generation or my, even my dad's generation and some of my older cousins generation. And so I feel really, really lucky in that sense, but it doesn't change the fact that like so much of what came up today came up today because there's just so much deep ingrained pain. So I said I would do part two on kind of what the reaction was from the Pope coming to Alberta and and the and what happened today and the ceremonies that took place because obviously it's hard to speak about something completely in in you know in foresight where you're like looking at something and you're like oh this is going to happen this is going to happen you don't actually know what's going to happen and I think it's it's important to reflect and to be able to like look back, I guess I'd say it's important to be able to see what actually happened and, and make an informed decision from there. Because I think that we can all make our, our pre, like our pre assumptions and our pre feelings and our assumptions on what's going to happen or our assumptions on who's in charge of what and what's going to go this way. But to actually watch it was very different. Um, so <laughs> I had really, truly not wanted to watch the Pope being in Moskwachis. I had truly not really wanted to even pay attention to it. There was a lot of feelings around it, most of them being like, fuck your apology feelings. Um, But then last night I was in the bathtub and I was having a lot of feelings after recording the pod and I started thinking about, you know, what would my grandma want me to do and what would my grandma have done? So even if like I didn't exist and she was still alive, what would she have done? What do I think would she have done? And what would my aunties have done that have passed? And what would they want to do? And I I really thought about the people they were because like obviously I can assume how they would have responded. But I think about the people that they were and how I feel like I know they would have responded. And I really sat with it and I thought about everything horrible my grandma did share about residential school and the things that I've gotten to read about from a paper that my brother had done on my grandma um, about her experience in residential school and the things I've heard from other elders and other people in our community. And, you know, my grandma and my grandma Betty, um, I know that they may not have gone, but I know they would have listened. I know that, I know that they would have made space for the people who are healing, 
I know that they would have made space for the people who decided that this was the way in which they wanted and needed to heal. And I know that at the end of the day, they would have approached any of those people with love, kindness, and respect. And that was something that I recognized after recording yesterday and even thinking about it today was that there is a huge opportunity for me to recognize that I might not think that the Pope's apology means anything. Um, but that doesn't mean that it means nothing. My opinion on it, um, although an opinion is not entirely one of value because I am not directly, I am indirectly impacted, but I was not somebody who was directly impacted. I wasn't in a residential school. Um, and so I really thought, like sat with it and I thought over and over and over and over again about what would they have done? And they were just such incredible women who loved from such a deep place and such a wholehearted view. And my grandma Betty was so fucking pure as a person. Like I have never in my life met another woman like her. And I don't think one would exist. Um, my grandma Pauline was my paternal grandmother. Um, and like, she's the one I always talk about. And, um, and she had a lot of love as well. And she spent her time running a daycare for children, for First Nations children. And I don't feel like my grandma very often, if ever, didn't take the opportunity to continue to look after those younger than her and pave the way and continue to pave the way by being an example in certain ways. Um, and so I decided this morning that I can't receive an apology for someone else because only they could have been the one to decide whether or not they would accept that apology, but I can listen to that apology for them and I can understand what it could potentially have meant to them and if it meant something to them. And I think that there's a lot of younger creators, Indigenous creators out there right now really struggling with the understanding of you might be angry about it and we might be angry about it and there's, I'm sure, a lot of mixed feelings about it, but the apology isn't just for our generation. You know, the apology wasn't meant just for us. It was meant for those who needed it. It was meant for those who did go to residential school and did need it. Um, and then there's, you know, us who, yes, we deserve it because we are the generation of the fallout of those residential schools. We are the generations of children who did not have to attend, but every day had to suffer the consequences of the actions of those who came before us, or sorry, the actions of those who hurt those who came before us. And so it was really, it was really interesting to turn on um, the entire thing, ceremony, procession, whatever you want to call it, and listen and see the powerful impact um, that it made in the crowd. You can see it when they're, they're scanning through the crowd. There's tears of joy and there's tears of sadness and there's tears of anger and there's people who are hurting and there's people who are healing and it's just such an array of feelings and emotions and you could see it on so many faces and as I looked at the faces of some of the people I've known my whole life um, and just the grief that they bared it was uh, it was really overwhelming it was actually really beautiful in certain ways to see faces of those who I know walked into today with the hopes to heal from the pain that they have endured. Um, it was really, really powerful in that sense. 
with that being said, I'm also acknowledging those who didn't go. Some of my direct family members, my aunts and uncles, my own father, who didn't go because they didn't believe that an apology was enough. They didn't believe that it was a, a sincere apology. They didn't believe in his apology coming from the heart. You know, why is the Pope apologizing? He wasn't there. Why is the Pope apologizing? He's not the one who did it. Um, there's a lot of mixed feelings about it. And I feel like there's this huge moment in the Indigenous community in Canada where we're kind of looking around at each other, trying to figure out how not to divide in our feelings around this um, and how to love and support one another. And something my grandfather always used to say, and it's been passed on in his teachings, is that First Nations people are a loving people. We were stewards of the land for a reason. Um, we were given the knowledge we were for a reason. And so I feel like at this time, regardless of my opinion, thoughts, and beliefs around the Pope's visit, even my own personal reaction around his apology, I have to honor those who it helped and healed, and I have to honor those who it hurt and angered and triggered. And I have to honor both of them by knowing simultaneously that grief is one hell of a bitch um, and that my my own approach to grief in this instance is is of importance to me, but not importance to the need to continue to uplift our elders and the people who experienced these, these traumas. What really got in my head about today was that this could, for some people, for some families um, of Indigenous people across Canada, this could be the trigger, um, maybe trigger is not the right word, but this could be the, the crux, this could be the moment uh, that changes an entire lineage. Um, you know, this apology could push somebody to go to therapy. This apology could push somebody to ask for forgiveness, say, say, I'm sorry. This apology could change entire dynamics of families. It depends on how the person receiving the apology wanted to receive it and how they received it, um, where it could also do the exact opposite for other families. And so I just feel like it's important for us to recognize that at this point in time, the Indigenous community continues to need love and support and continues to need care and understanding and that there is no complete right and there is no complete wrong and that it's easy to get angry and we're allowed to get angry because grief comes out in all forms and a major part of our grief is anger. Um, you know, that that's also allowed. There was a moment during the, the, I don't know what to call the ceremony, I guess, but there was a moment where a woman stood up in buckskin and um, she started singing O Canada in Cree. And it was a very incredibly powerful moment and I was already bawling, but it definitely made me cry more. Um, and there was a moment where she was screaming and that moment of seeing that pain register on her face, that, that deep guttural, anguish and sadness and recognizing for one moment recognizing the incredible strength of in that person and that incredible strength of generations and you know the the people whom are still yelling and still needing to be heard and so there was just this like really powerful impactful moment and what a moment that was and to like think about it now, several hours after everything's kind of ended, there's a lot of like feelings around the fact that, you know, I'm so happy that she had a moment to stand up and, and speak her truth, whatever that 
was to her at that moment, because again, this could be a trigger for some healing. It could mean a trigger for some regression. Um, something that I really struggled with today in all of this was the fear of watching family members regress, um, knowing that there's still so much work to do. So rather than continue talking about my feelings and the Pope, I wanted to do a little bit more discussion and education around Indian residential schools and what you can do and how you can take the time to educate yourself and to um, ask questions and to give yourself the opportunity to be wrong and be embarrassed and be uncomfortable in order for growth, in order for change, in order for healing. Um, so a lot of people responded to today's podcast with, I had no idea that this even existed. I had no idea this was happening. A lot of, a lot of people who were like, I didn't know this existed are, are people living in the States or living in foreign countries that I know, or that listen to the podcast. So it's like not overly, it's not like, oh, well, how can you live in Canada? Not know. So it was, there was a lot of like, I didn't know this existed. Thank you for sharing. Um, there's people who, fell down the rabbit holes of, of researching and, and became incredibly sad and, and mortified um, and he became angry on the behalf of Indigenous people at the Pope and at the Catholic Church. Um, and then there was also people who were like, thank you for sharing your words. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing parts of your grandmother. And I got asked actually by a few people to share my grandmother's story in a residential school if I could. And I want to be very clear about something. Um, it's not my story to tell. I have given snippets of things over time because those snippets became part of interwoven into being part of my story because they are sh who shaped me as a person. Some of those stories are what helped me make decisions and approach certain things in certain ways because of what she went through. Some of the pain and, and trauma that I've dealt with in life has come from things that, you know, were direct reflections of the trauma that my family endured. Um, but it's not my story to tell and not just that it's incredibly private. Um, and I think that's something that we need to really respect in the coming weeks, as I believe we're going to see a mix of things that come out of this. We're going to see a mix of, of elders now stepping up and sharing their stories. And we're going to have other people pulling back and being afraid of sharing their stories. Um, and we have to honor that and understand that their stories do not belong to us. They do not belong. My grandmother's story does not belong to me. My grandmother's story affected me, but it does not belong to me. It's not mine to tell. Um, and that it, it goes that way throughout. And it's not because I, like, I, th I thought about this too. I was like, oh, it's not mine to tell, but like, what if it's lost forever? It's like, well, it's not. It's written down. It's somewhere. And, you know, if I ever had kids or my brother ever has kids, we'll share you know, we'll share what we choose to share, just like she shared with us what she chose to share. And my dad shared with me about her experience, what he chose to share and about his own experiences in Indian day schools, what he chose to share. And the list will continue to go on and we will continue to pass those stories through our lineage in a way that helps healing and understanding. Uh, but I don't believe that they are meant for global consumption. I don't believe they're for mass consumption. Um, and I don't believe we owe it to anybody. But what I will say about understanding First Nations people and the and and the struggle within Canada of First Nations people is the current way in which we are trying to find reconciliation. And the current way that reconciliation is held um, by the government and how the way it's dealt with by the federal government. And so I think it's really important that people become educated on the way in which um, the government is dealing with truth and reconciliation. 
So there's tons and tons of articles, so I'm not going to go into statistics. And I don't believe it's my job as an Indigenous person to educate everybody on this. But I do think it's important from my perspective to share this so that there is some capacity for understanding and some capacity for um, compassion, because I think compassion is needed here. So when, so <laughs> there is such thing, yes, residential schools existed. Now there's also such thing as day schools. And what people, a lot of people in Canada, actually, and all over the world, and, and people who talk about these things, they don't recognize or they don't understand that uh, there are Indian day schools and what Indian day schools were and the fact that they existed and, and how they impacted, um, like how they impacted people. And so I feel called to, to share like what an Indian day school was. And so day school was very similar to residential school, only the kids went home at night. And even then, sometimes they didn't. And it was also day schools existed for the same exact reason residential schools did. So the, the Catholic Church still made an X amount of money from the Canadian federal government for each Indigenous head that they had in their care. Um, now, one of the largest downsides to, I mean, there's a huge downside to all of them, but one a very large um, impact from day school is, is that it was at the time of segregation. Now, if you're Canadian, you might not realize and recognize that segregation also existed here too. It's not, it's not, it wasn't just in North, it wasn't just in the States. Um, it wasn't just in America, America, we were no better than America at the time. Um, they absolutely existed here. Yeah, segregation was a huge thing here. And even especially in Alberta. And when I hear my dad tell stories about segregation, it blows my mind because my dad is seven. Bindi. I was like, I forgot how old he was for a second. My dad just turned 70 a few weeks ago. And when he talks to me about um, segregation, especially in our hometown, it blows my mind that things were run that way. So day schools, um, not at the very beginning, but but during their during their existence, um, were when they started to mix, also started to mix um, First Nation students with white students. And the first, the white students were taught the same anger, hatred, and degra degradation of um, First Nation students. And um, they were also taught to abuse First Nations kids. They were taught to be racist. They were taught to physically harm them. Um, there's many stories of rape um, and murder and brutality from day schools, uh, the same as residential schools. And so it's so, it's so heartbreaking. And my, my father attended day school, my, uh, all my aunties and uncles attended day school and they all had very traumatic, traumatic experiences at the hands of others. And so if you understand much about the truth and reconciliation act, um, you would understand that some first nations people are entitled to some form of payout in regards to the trauma that they endured in residential schools and in day schools. Um, what you might not be aware of is that in order for you to qualify for any form of compensation, um, you must relive every account of what happened to you. And there's three different tiers that you can go through. So there's the first tier. Um, and I have to pull up my reference notes here because 
I am not good with knowing the tears part of it, but I had it broken down for me earlier. So level, so level one is um, you say, yes, I attended day school or residential school that happened to me and you get a lump sum of money. Um, level two is I attended day school and residential school and some potentially bad things happened to me, um, but I have no cooperation and I don't want to go into detail. And then you get, a, again, a payout of lump sum of money. And then there's level three. And level three is putting on paper every horrific thing that's ever happened to you in day school or residential school, right down to physical acts, names, dates, times, what you were wearing, what the person who hurt you was wearing, um, and a recountation of every single trauma that you experienced in your time there. Um, and as a woman who has been sexually assaulted, I can tell you right now that it was incredibly, incredibly hard and painful to do anything about it because it meant recounting everything bad that happened. So can you imagine amplifying that by like a thousand? Can you imagine having to sit down and write out every single painful thing that ever happened to you word for word in order for somebody to believe you? Could you imagine having to not only write that out so somebody would believe you, but having to go into depth, into detail, give names, possible dates, what they were wearing, who was around, who could have witnessed it, having to have witnesses who corroborate your story. Um, and then the government gets to decide where you fit on those scales as well. So you can apply level one, two, or three. But if the government gets your story and they go, no, nah, it's not that bad, they can bump it down. They can put you at level one. You could have sat there and written out your level three application and said, you know, all of the horrible things that happened to you and you submit it and they get it and they read it and they review it and they go, nah, <laughs> this is level one. We don't think that there's enough evidence. We don't think that you were, we don't think you told us enough. We don't think that you were real enough. We don't think you went through enough. And they bump it right back down to one. And so this is the fucked up thing about the truth and reconciliation that nobody pays attention to. This is the fucked up thing that the Canadian government doesn't tell people is that in order for there to be any sort of reconciliation, whether that be financial, verbal, whatever, it causes First Nations people to relive every account of trauma. So what ends up happening is that it's almost like a bullying effect. Most First Nations people settle for a level one because it's easier than saying this is what happened to me. Um, and then you have to less, less chances of reliving it. So I have family members who've settled for a level one because it's just easier for them mentally, emotionally. Um, and also, like I had said previously, their story doesn't belong to anybody but them. And so they shouldn't have to put it on paper in order to be believed. Um, but here we are. And then like level three people who get their stories, I don't want to say demoted, but classed down in regards to what happened to them because of the fact that they couldn't remember what they were wearing that day and they couldn't remember a witness or they couldn't or nobody was around to witness so therefore it's 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 not factual it's it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking and there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of indigenous people first nations people who have to sit down and fill out these forms and relive that and then we wonder why our suicide rates are so high and we wonder why people don't do it and we wonder why people aren't willing to talk about it and why our generation, why my generation has to hear stories through third-hand parties. And so that's that's one step. And I highly implore you to dig deeper and understand what truth and reconciliation really means in Canada. Because once you understand what it means in Canada, you might not be so quickly to put, let the words come out of your mouth. 
because it doesn't really seem to exist here yet, at least to the degree it should. So that's a little bit more education. Another thing that I recently found out through research and through some amazing resources that I have had the opportunity to speak to and things I've, I've read and, and things I've listened to is that, um, and this isn't, it's not okay that this happens, but something again that we need to be mindful of is that for every Catholic priest and nun who existed in Canada, there was a file that existed on them. And then that file was all of the things and stories that they would have told, pictures that they would have taken, and their entire file. So think of it like a permanent record. Think of when you were a kid and you went to school and teachers used to joke around that I'll be on your permanent record. Well, there used to be that in existence for residential schools, for the staff, the priests, the nuns, and, and any other um, people involved. And then there was records for the students as well. And a lot of those records were destroyed by the Catholic Church. Um, but the records that weren't destroyed are actually kept in an archive. And um, from my understanding, the primary archive for Canada exists here in Alberta. And in that archive, the archives are sealed per, per parishioner and per nun. And uh, they cannot be opened until 50 years after somebody's death. So an example of this would be if a priest was, you know, in his early 20s, late teens, early 20s, becoming a priest in a residential school, there is a very likely chance that he could be in his 80s or 90s today, um, which is insane. And that means that it will still be 50 years from now for some to open those records and understand what happened. And that's a really scary and sad thing about the reality of, of residential schools and the reality of the way that these things are kept hidden and kept swept under the rug and they're not being addressed and they're not being heard. They're not being seen. And it's another way to continue to elongate the suffering of those who were impacted by these atrocities. So it's really interesting to me again with the Pope's apology today that like, I'm hoping that this is going to stem into names. It's going to stem into like, uncovering of files, opening of archives, not having to wait 50 years after someone's death to unseal a record. Because let's be honest, 50 years from now, 50 years from today, for me, I might not even be here anymore. But 50 years from now, realistically, that's when I could see and potentially unseal like my dad's teacher's records and know what happened. You know, that it's just, or they could have closure. Like it's just sickening to me that that's even a thing. Um, and so, like, again, I, I hope that people take what they're hearing from the podcast and they walk with it and they understand that there's an opportunity for them to educate themselves and to do more digging. Um, so I pulled together some resources that I think are really important for people to look into and pay attention to. And because I'm not the grand master when it comes to teaching everybody, when it's not my job to teach everybody, but I, I was brought up in a home that believed in open dialogue about these things in regards to, not, I don't want to say brought up in a home that was believed in open dialogues. Um, my dad has always said to me that if somebody is wanting to learn and you're willing to teach them, then teach them. And it's something my grandpa always said, and I know that as a First Nations person, it's not my job. But when I am willing and wanting and able, then I'm going to. And all I ask is for respect and respect of boundaries when I do. Um, and that's kind of where I come from in my whole feelings and understanding around it. So 
rather than continuing to educate you from my perspective and from simply my views and my knowledge, there are a few books that I absolutely want to recommend to people out there. The first one I'm going to start with is All of Our Relations. It's by Tanya Talaga. Now, when I talk about the fallouts of residential school, if you want to know how it has continued to impact the greater nation um, and those residing on Turtle Island, All of Our Relations was an incredible book. It was an incredible read. It exists on Audible. Um, I think it was actually free on Audible when I first got it. And um, it's powerful. So what what Tanya wrote about in all of our relationships is she really went into depth about the trauma that exists in First Nations communities and the suicide rates that exist in First Nations communities because of the fallout from Indian hospitals and residential schools and day schools and just generational trauma. Um, she gets into statistics and the understanding and the DNA of, of trauma and the grief of being First Nations people in Canada and what's happening worldwide and what has been failed, what has failed to happen and what has failed to be done about it. Um, and it's just a really, really insightful read. It's a really easy read. Tanya's an incredible writer. And I just found I took so much away from this book and went, wow, like there's so much I feel like I got to walk away from this with as a First Nations person that I didn't know before that my family never would have talked to me about or taught me about. So that is a big one that I really highly, highly recommend. Um, then there's also Braiding Sweetgrass by um, Robin Wall Kimmer. And I had an opportunity uh, during the pandemic to attend a lecture that uh, she was given, giving via Zoom for UBC. And what I love about Braiding Sweetgrass is it talks about First Nations in relation to the earth and being the original land stewards and like a lot of beliefs. So because like I'm Plains Cree, but there's so many other different types of First Nations people out there. Like we're not all just one thing, you know, where some of us are Navajo, Blackfoot, um, Cherokee, uh, Sioux, like, and not just like there's, there's different types of Sioux. There's Lakota Sioux. And then for Cree, there's Plains Cree. And, and then there's like Blackfoot and Cree mix. And so there's so many different types of First Nations people, but there's general teachings that kind of they're different stories and they're different ways of coming at things, but they're kind of all the same general belief. Like there's still a general consensus on them. And I, what I found about uh, braiding sweetgrass is that it touches a lot on that. And it talks a lot about that. Um, and then you just learn so much and it really makes you value the land and it makes you value the people and it makes you value the way in which we approach it. And so that was a really really good book to read. Um, another really great thing to listen to was a podcast. It's called Stolen. Um, and it's Stolen Surviving St. Michael's. It's, um, it is by Gimlet and it is, um, also by, uh, it's, it's sponsored by Samsung Galaxy, uh, and BMO, <laughs> but it is, it is on, um, Spotify. It's a Spotify original and it is the, it's by journalist Connie Walker who investigates her father, um, her father's time in residential school, but it also is, it starts because she initially finds out that her father was part of the RCMP and he pulled over a suspected drunk driver, and it just so happened to be a priest who was believed to have abused him in residential school, and he beat the ever-loving shit out of him. Um, and the RCMP never released him, and for it, um, he chose to leave. And so she goes on this adventure, adventure, like, she goes on this journalist 
quest to find out more about her father and to find out more about what he went through and to find out like his process and what happened and, and how he ended up where he ended up and how he ended up beating up that priest and why he wasn't let go from the RCMP. And what I'm loving about Stolen is because she's a journalist, because Connie's a journalist, she goes really, really, really in depth about certain things. And there is an episode as well that I shared today because I feel like, again, it's important to uplift Indigenous voices and it's important for us to pay attention. Um, but the episode that I posted today was episode four, Not a Place to Be. And it is a really tough listen. So if you're going to listen to episode four straight out the gate and not listen to the whole series, um, just know that episode four is really, really powerful and impactful, but also really sad. Um, but it is multiple stories of multiple people who attended St. Michael's Residential School in Saskatchewan recounting their experience in residential school and recounting the horrors that they endured as well. So highly recommend Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's on Spotify. It is really good. It is, again, really insightful, really powerful. I loved every, I've loved every minute of it, even though the harder parts to listen, even though the sadder parts to listen, it is, um, it's just something that's taught me a lot. Uh, and I just feel like many people would benefit from, from listening to it. Uh, and there, there are other resources as well that I could talk about. And there's a few other authors that I'd love to point at and, and say, these are amazing authors to listen to, but I'm going to let you guys go out and do the research and do the understanding and do the, the, the searching to find what's going to best suit your learning modality and your want to impact and help and, and how you can continue to uplift indigenous voices and indigenous people. Um, I really, really appreciated those who listened to part one and reached out. I really appreciate those who reached out to me via like Instagram and Facebook and text message today just to check in and see how I was doing. It, I'm very grateful for it. Um, I think that's something I struggle with is being an Indigenous person, is being typecast into that role for people of like, oh, she's an Indigenous person, therefore like we should listen to her. We should like support her more um, because like I feel like I don't know. It just makes me feel wildly uncomfortable. I think there's many layers to that that we won't go into because you guys aren't my therapists. Um, but there's just like a lot of feelings that came up around all of this today. And I really appreciate the people who took the time to ask and took the time to check in. The last thing I want to be is an Indigenous creator who profits off of the suffering of others. So I highly recommend that if you are looking for ways to help out, there are multiple, multiple resources that you can find. Um, there's different, all sorts of different, um, there's all sorts of different programs that you can um, donate to. Um, and then there's also like just different ways that you can help out by continuing to share. So when, when an Indigenous child goes missing, continuing to share uh, their posts. And when you see an, a murdered and missing Indigenous woman or you see a missing Indigenous woman that you share those posts, because that's the thing that we get makes us all still continue to see the blatant racism and, and differentiation in Indigenous people and other people within Canada is the fact that our missing and murdered Indigenous women get less airtime, they get less attention. It's not just in Canada, it's, it's across North America. Um, and continuing to pay attention to, again, missing Indigenous children. Again, they are the lowest reported next, like children of color are the lowest reported missing children. If a white little white girl goes missing, everybody knows about it. But if a little Indigenous boy goes missing, nobody bats an eyelash. And so 
what I really, really hope in asking all of you listeners for in those people who ask me, like, what can I do to help or what can I do differently or do you, do you, do you have the capacity for me to ask you those things? All I can ask is that you continue to look for ways to help that um, are putting hand, money in the hands of right people, um, are putting support efforts in the hands of the right people, and support can look as simple as sharing a Facebook post. Um, and to cap this all off, and because I know this is a long, long go so far, uh, and to say you know, for those of you who are listening, who are triggered by this and who are upset by this, I wanted to give a few phone numbers. So if you um, are an Indian residential school survivor um, and are a family member of an Indian residential school student, um, be them currently alive or past, there's a toll-free number that is a crisis line in which you can reach out to. So if you're feeling heavily impacted by what has taken place in the last week from this episode itself, from what's being shared on social media, from what's going on in social media, you can call that number. And it is 1-866-925-4419. And that's for Canadian residents only. This is offered through um, SAC. Uh, so the health service, healthcare services for First Nations and Inuit people and Indigenous Health and Indigenous Health Services Canada. Um, and again, uh, that number is 1-866-925-4419. It's a 24-hour crisis present- prevention support line. Um, and it is for First Nations children from Indian residential schools um, and their families. So it's not just if you went, it could be, you could be a granddaughter, grandson, um, a daughter, a son who is impacted. And so that's the number for that. Um, individuals impacted by uh, an issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls are encouraged to contact the MMIGW, MMIWG crisis line toll free at 1-844-413-6649. Um, again, that's 1-844-413-6649. This is a also a crisis line offered to those who are heavily impacted by MMIWG. Um, and I highly recommend you utilizing this if, if you are somebody who has lost somebody or is struggling with this, um, the impacts that are ripple impacts and ripple, ripple, sorry, ripple moments that are created by this kind of, um, this kind of trauma. And then, uh, Métis, so First Nations, Inuit, Métis seeking immediate emotional support can contact Hope for Wellness Helpline. Again, that's toll free at 1-855-242-3310. And that's 1-855-242-3310. You can also jump online and chat for hopeforwellness.ca. These are programs that are offered. They are free to you. They are toll free numbers. And if you are somebody who's struggling um, and just need some where to vent, somebody to talk to, somebody to say things out loud to, um, I highly, highly recommend reaching out to these, um, these services and taking a look at what they can offer you. Uh, there is so many more things that exist, so many more opportunities like this to take a look at. Um, but my, my big thing in, in all of this is saying thank you for those who've listened. Thank you for those who continue to help. Thank you for those who continue to uplift. Thank you for those who created space for Indigenous people. Thank you for those who took the time to look deeper, to look at their own ways of responding to things. Thank you to those who took a look at this and went, wow, I can do better or you know, identified and understood that their privilege is a direct impact to those around them. Um, and I want to say thank you guys for uplifting and loving me uh, through throughout all of this. And most of all, I just want to say thank you for listening once again, and we will talk to you next week.